The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. Two weeks ago, Michael spoke of the three visitors coming to visit Abraham at his tent near the great tree of memory. And Michael said, I won't explain who the three visitors were, there's lots of different theories, uh, but he said he'd leave that for Andy last week and for me this week to explain who that might be. (laughs) So, last week from the second part of uh, uh, Genesis 18, Andy unpacked this conversation between Abraham and the Lord. So just be clear. There's Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's Hebron, which is at where the great trees of memory were. So Andy unpacked the verse, and it included this one that says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, if you're going to go for a drive around Auckland, you might go further out west, you might go out east, or you may go up north or down south. When you look at the map, you note that from Abraham's tent, he would have looked south to Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 22 we read that the two men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing with the Lord. And as we turn this morning to Genesis 19, we're told that the two angels arrived in Sodom. Now the word angel can simply mean messenger, but I think it's reasonable to assume that these two men who had appeared at Abraham's tent were in fact angels. And so the three visitors at Abraham's tent, two men head down towards Sodom and two angels arrive in Sodom. So, two angels. And the Lord says, and the Lord says, and the Lord has this conversation with Abraham. So it seems highly likely that the third of the three was the Lord. Seems reasonable to assume. More than that, this is God in human form. So, as many would believe, I believe, this is Jesus. Not in human flesh, but in human form. After his resurrection, he appears to Mary, and he says, don't touch me, I haven't yet been to the Father. Then he goes back to the Father, and he comes back down, and he meets the boys in the afternoon, and then later on he meets them on the beach, and he has a feed with them. In human form, but not in human flesh, after the resurrection and throughout the Old Testament. We kind of make the mistake sometimes that the word was present in the beginning, like John says, and then Jesus kind of disappears for the next 4,000 years until he is born, conceived in the womb of Mary. But Jesus was likely present throughout the Old Testament and active. And so I would note that when in Genesis 18 we're told that the Lord says, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry, he was not saying... I will go down from heaven to earth to have a look. He says, I'm going to go down south to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if it is bad. 
The cry has gone up to God, but now the Lord is going down to Sodom. And so we pick up the story now in Genesis 19, and it's a long reading. The two angels arrived in Sodom. It's not only long because there's lots of words and verses, it's long because of the content. The two angels arrived in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My Lord, he said, please turn aside from your servant's house. Sorry, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow comes here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We will treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door, but the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not see the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, or any, uh, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to be married to his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant, if your servant has found favour in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains, this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to where I can run to, and it's a small town. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. 
By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all of those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all of the land of the plain, and he saw a dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So little in this passage is positive. Mike and I got together on Monday night and I said to Mike, you knew what you were doing when you picked to preach two weeks ago. <laughs> Usually I managed to get Andy or Mike to take one of these passages and it's like, this is not a passage that I've ever really wanted to preach on. It's a tough, hard passage. And yet in the midst of such horror, there are some amazing glimmers of hope. I want to take you back to very close to our early part of the story in Genesis, back to Genesis 3. And uh, Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree and they're being cast out of the garden. And at the end of Genesis 3, the Lord says, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. It feels kind of an innocuous kind of little verse. There's nothing harsh in that. But you realise in that verse, God has said, because two people each had a bite out of one piece of fruit, every human being in history will die. That's actually pretty intense when you think about it. Two people, one piece of fruit, and every person in human history will die. However, we know that ultimately through the death of Jesus, that death stops being the end and the worst outcome. It actually becomes the opportunity to exit this world of sin and one day go to live forever with him. Roll forward 1,650 years approximately and we came to the story of Noah and the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human heart race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings and that his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. Now almost the entire creation will perish. Except, of course, for Noah and his family and the animals that they took onto the ark with them and one assumes quite a few of the ocean-dwelling species would not have drowned in the flood for obvious reasons. All of creation will die because of the depravity of mankind. But only that generation, because there will be another generation and generations beyond that to come. 
And of course the promise of the rainbow was that God says, never again will I destroy the earth in this way. And then last Sunday, as Andy read, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and so grievous that I will go down. We see the story is so horrendous. And yet in this story, it's only two towns, well, and a few other surrounding villages that are being destroyed. See, where God was bringing judgment on the whole of humanity and on the whole of creation, now he's dealing with the, the ones who are absolutely at their worst. I don't imagine the rest of the world was great. In fact, after the flood, God said, the inclination of the human heart is still only evil all the time. But he's not destroying everyone again. He's just dealing with that which has come to its absolute worst. The cry has gone up probably from the neighbouring towns. Maybe from Lot. But certainly not from anyone else within the town. You see, when Lot moved to Sodom and Gomorrah, we've already read back in Genesis 13, that the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. That's what the town was like when he went there. And it just continued to get worse. As Lot has moved closer and is now living in Sodom, the decline continues until the outcry is so great that God brings judgment. But it's not a judgment on all humanity for all time. It's not even a judgment on an entire generation. This judgment is limited to these towns in the surrounding area. And the day will come in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18.4, God will declare, the one who sins is the one who will die. As the story unfolds, the two angels approach the city of Sodom and they find Lot at the city gate. And they suggest that they will spend the night in the city square. And Lot begs with them to stay in his home. Lot is under no illusion what the city is like in which he has chosen to live and to raise his family. For very soon we will find that all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surround the house. Not just most, not just the old, not just the young, not just some, all of the men from every part of town. And I read without words to express really how I feel of Lot's proposal to send out his two daughters. What father could do that? How could a father suggest such a thing? But then I think of his dilemma. He has as a guest in his home two angels, or at least he knows them as two men who he has bowed down before. He, he understands and respects who they are. And so he's given this choice, is it these men who are guests in my home or is it my daughters? 
what would you do? You know, we talk about being caught between a rock and a hard place. We talk about choosing between the lesser of two evils. But here's Lot. And his only choices are equally abhorrent. And what does he do? I'd never, I said to Margaret as I went to bed last night, I'd never noticed this in the passage until this time. Lot is actually standing outside the door. His guests are inside. His daughters are inside. He is the one who is standing outside the door, taking the risk having this conversation. This is not a father offering his daughters to the crowd. This is a man who has lived in the midst of this horror for so long, amidst a man who has tolerated this sin for so long. The only choices he now has are impossible. Every option unpalatable. I can only say that the longer we live with and tolerate sin, whether it's in our society and especially in our own hearts, the fewer and tougher our choices become. I'll say that again. The longer we tolerate sin, especially in our own lives, and refuse to deal with it, our choices only become fewer and harder. And just when everything seems absolutely hopeless, these are the best choices that Lot can find. Then God steps in. And the men inside reach out, pull Lot back inside, and every man, boy, in that city, standing outside that house, they are struck blind. When we find ourselves lost in sin and suffering, when we find ourselves in the deepest, darkest space, now many of you, I know Mike, you testify, you've never been in that space. Praise God for that. But Mike, I'm sure you've met people who are in that space. You've been a youth leader, you've seen people who are heading into that space. And we know people who are in those spaces, and some of us may have been in those places where it's just so desperate, and in those moments, God will reach out. And even in the toughest of places, we seem to have no other option. God can meet us in that place, and he can deliver us. I could go on to talk about lots of son-in-laws who when given a warning, treat it like it's a joke. We meet people like that who respond when we want to share the love and the grace and mercy of God with them. We will just treat it like a joke. I could talk of Lot's hesitation to leave. It's like, Lot, you've lived in this place. You find yourself in this spot. And when you're told to run away, he's going, oh. He hesitates. How often we can be so desperately caught up in our stuff 
And yet when we're offered a way out, we've got to, well, we're kind of comfortable with our stuff. Think of what I'm leaving. Think of what I'm losing. So these angels grab their hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and leaves them out to safety outside of the city. I could talk and it astounds me of Lot's unwillingness to follow the instructions of the angels to flee to the mountains. He's going, oh, oh but the mountains, I, I may not make it. It's like, do you think God sends you two angels to deliver you from this destruction and he's going to let you die on the way to the mountains? But even in the midst of that, Lot's going, I don't want to run too far. Here's a small place over here you can preserve it and me there. I could talk about the struggle of Lot's wife just to keep running and not look back. But I think there's a more important lesson to be found. You know, throughout the Bible, throughout history, since, Sodom and Gomorrah have become synonymous with the extremes of sin and depravity that are rightly deserving of God's judgment. And clearly we know from this morning's reading just why it is remembered in the depths of that depravity. But let's not fool ourselves. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not limited to the sexual sins that are highlighted in this, para- in this, in this passage this morning. In Ezekiel, God brings a word against the Jewish nation, specifically against the city of Jerusalem and her detestable practices. And he says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. And then he says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. Do you notice there? God doesn't start out by pointing to their detestable practices. They were arrogant. Welcome to our generation. Welcome to me. Overfed. Unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. We, like Jerusalem, might say, but hey, we're not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says to them and to us, you simply don't understand the problem of sin. You don't understand how destructive sin is and how quickly and completely sin needs to be dealt with. He says, don't just turn your back on it. Run from it. Run from it as fast as you can while you can. In Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He doesn't say, stop that. He says, flee from it. In 1 Corinthians 10.14, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Ashley talks about growing up in a family where going to the temple and having surrounded by the... How many of you go into your own homes and say, what are my idols here? What are the things in this place that take the place of God? Because anything 
that takes a place in your life ahead of God is an idol. And God says, flee from idolatry. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, for the love of, love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And in 2 Timothy, he says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. God has, from day one, always acted in love, grace, and mercy. That is his nature. God has always acted justly. That is his nature. And God has always dealt decisively, decisively with regard to sin. That too is his nature. We can look at today's story in bewilderment, in horror, or whatever your response might be, because I don't have words to describe my response to reading that passage. But the ultimate picture of sin and its horror and God's judgment and his love and mercy is this. His son, the son of God, God himself crucified, laying down his life. And we're told that God made him who had no sin to be sin for him. God didn't just put sin on his shoulders. Every fibre of his being became infused with every depravity known to man and committed by man from the Garden of Eden until the Day of Judgment. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are horrified and offended, and probably a bunch of other words, when we think of Lot offering his daughters. But how readily we look past the fact that God gave his only son. The sinless son of God receiving in his own body your sin and mine and taking upon us, upon himself, your punishment and mine, that we might escape judgment and death as Lot escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever the sin done by you or to you, whatever your brokenness and pain, Jesus has taken it upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God against sin so that we might be restored to the Father, the source of eternal life, bringing forgiveness and healing and wholeness and eternal life. No matter how bad things are, God's grace is available and God's grace is sufficient. God can reach you wherever you are 
and those friends and family that you have who concern you so much, God can reach them wherever they are. And those people that you are meeting up the street, you are God reaching them right where they are. And God is able to deliver them, no matter how bad their situation and circumstance has become. And in Romans 8, Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Te Atatū. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.